Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hello, and welcome to Western Civ. Episode 131, King of England, King of France. When we last left off, King Henry V of England scored a dramatic victory over the French Dauphin, the Prince of France, at the Battle of Agincourt. However, Henry's army was too exhausted and depleted to take advantage of the victory. So no matter what Shakespeare might have thought, the victory at Agincourt did not immediately lead to Henry V being crowned the King of France. This time, however, we will see Henry regroup and return to a France still led by the mad King Charles VI and divided between the Burgundian and Armagnac factions to challenge for the French crown. The first thing Henry had to do if he was going to press a serious claim to the French throne was reinvigorate the English navy. Holding Calais was great, but if Henry could not easily move troops back and forth across the channel, it did not count for much. In 1413, there had been a grand total of six, just six, ships in the English navy. Six. By the end of 1417, Henry had increased that number to 34. How had he done it? Well, as unimportant as I might have claimed Agincourt was from a purely military perspective, it nonetheless reinvigorated English interest in the war. Parliament, previously so stingy, quickly granted Henry fresh provisions. Orders went out in 1417 that each village needed to provide six wing feathers from every goose in the village for fletching for arrows. War was coming. In July 1417, Henry again landed in Normandy with 10,000 men, around the same number he landed with in 1415. This time, however, his plan was the systematic Roman-style conquest. It would begin in Normandy. If Henry could take Lower Normandy, the part closer inland, then he would not only acquire a useful supply base, but also cut off Upper Normandy from any hope of relief from either Anjou or Brittany. It was a sound plan. By August, Henry had surrounded Cayenne in northwestern modern-day France. If you could see Cayenne on a map, what you would note immediately is its obvious strategic importance. If Henry could take the city, 
a huge chunk of Normandy would be effectively cut off from the rest of France. Caen had strong walls and was well defended, but by now, the English were getting quite adept at cannon-style warfare. Henry's guns battered at the walls, and by September 4th, Henry was able to personally lead an assault of the town. Caen quickly fell and was sacked. It was not, however, destroyed. In fact, it would serve now as Henry's new administrative capital for Normandy, and would even have an English chancellor. From Caen, Henry moved on to Rouen. Rouen was one of the richest cities in the French kingdom, mostly from weaving, though it did enjoy a spirited trade in gold luxury goods with Paris. Rouen is on the Lower Seine. It's downstream from Paris by about 70 miles as the crow flies. It was perhaps the second city in the kingdom besides Paris. At least, that's what Henry would have thought. We know because he wrote as much in his correspondence back to England. It was also massively defended. It had five miles worth of walls, with six large forts called Barbicans and 60 towers. It had a garrison of 2,000 men-at-arms, and it would not fall easily. Yet, if Henry could take it, he could directly threaten Paris, as no English king had done since Edward III. Henry went about besieging Rouen in methodical fashion. He built four fortified camps, one on each side of the city. He blocked the river upstream with a chain to deny the city relief from that direction. Downstream, he blocked it with a huge bridge of boats. Rouen was on its own. The French responded with their own scorched earth tactics, destroying all the towns and farms in the surrounding area to deny Henry easy access to food and supplies. Henry overcame this, however, by bringing food across the channel that he now controlled thanks to his investment in the Navy and up the Seine. It was costly, but he made it happen. Rouen called on both Burgundians and Armagnacs for aid. None came. By October, the citizens of Rouen were reportedly eating horse flesh. Rouen then did the same thing that Vercingetorix had done to Caesar a thousand plus years earlier. They kicked the poor out of the city. Henry, just like Caesar, then refused to admit them to his camp, and they died in the ditch between the two opposing forces. When asked, during a potential parley on New Year's Eve in 1419, whether he would take them in as part of a good-faith gesture, Henry simply responded, Who was it that put them there? In spite of this, Henry and the city leaders of Rouen reached a deal. If no relief army arrived by January 19th, so 18 days from now, then the city would surrender. As part of the terms, the garrison would be allowed to leave under the condition that they swear an oath never again to fight the English. The city would then also pay Henry an indemnity of 300,000 gold crowns. No relief army came, and the city duly surrendered on January 19th. Both sides held the agreement, and Henry entered the city in splendor on January 20th, the day after the surrender. Henry then spent two months repairing Rouen's defenses before preparing once more to go on campaign. Henry was now the undisputed master of Normandy, and that small but crucial middle ground called the Vexen. Recall the Vexen borders Normandy and the Kingdom of France, and was the subject of much bloodshed during the reigns of Richard I 
and King John all those years ago. Now, it was back in English hands. Henry, by and large, dispossessed the Norman lords of their estates and handed them over to loyal English supporters. In addition, there was a limited effort at colonization, and an English settlement of 10,000 was established at Harfleur. In that way, historian Desmond Seward argues that Henry V's conquest of Normandy was much like William of Normandy's conquest of England. Normandy was then governed by its traditional institutions. There remained a guerrilla resistance in the woods, but frankly, Henry left very few troops to garrison Normandy, which might speak to a number of factors, including Normandy's reluctance to assimilate into the Kingdom of France, and maybe even the depopulation of 70 years of war coupled with the Black Plague. Regardless, the English would hold Normandy for the next 30 years, and Normandy had a special place in Henry's heart, referring to Guienne specifically as our Duchy of Normandy. Normandy also gave Henry huge strategic advantages. He could now access the Seine River from north and south. He could cut off Paris if he wanted to. Taking Normandy, especially the royal docks at Rouen, had also meant the end of the French Navy, cementing his complete control over the Channel. It was a massive threat to France, still divided and still led by an insane king, and was in no position to meet this threat. In fact, things had gotten worse. In 1419, the Armagnacs had murdered the Duke of Burgundy. The division between the two camps was now essentially permanent. The new Duke of Burgundy, Philip the Good, was a man of 25 years of age. He decided early on that he would ally himself with England, believing he could get a much better deal with the Lancastrians than with the House of Valois. He was a shrewd leader and very much interested in seeing Burgundy rise. Ultimately, though, this alliance would doom his kingdom. While there was division in France, I should point out that very many good historians argue that the Hundred Years' War is where we start to see England and France firmly forming nation-states. We already talked about how the English nobility during the reign of Edward III ceased speaking French. The following treatise, written in 1419, describing the English from the French perspective, gives us a sense of the feeling between the two states. Quote, the war they, that is the English, have waged and still wage is false, treacherous, and damnable. But then they are an accursed race, opposed to all good and all reason, ravening wolves, proud, arrogant hypocrites, tricksters without any conscience, tyrants and persecutors of Christians, men who drink and gorge on human blood with natures like birds of prey, people who live only by plunder. End quote. With Burgundy and England now allied, the future looked bleak for the Armagnacs. Philip the Good and Henry V now sought to negotiate with the mad king Charles VI to bring an end to the war. And Charles' insanity would play a major role here. When the three men met on May 20th, 1420, 
Charles did not seem to know who Henry was. Regardless, they reached an agreement. Henry would become the King of France upon Charles's death and marry his daughter, Catherine. In return, Henry had to agree to fight the Armagnacs and conquer all of France that they still held. It was clear that this agreement benefited Philip the Good of Burgundy more than anyone else. Henry and Philip then immediately set about conquering the rest of northern France held by the Armagnacs. The biggest obstacle for said conquest was the crucial city of Melun, about 25 miles southeast of Paris. Henry and Philip surrounded the city in July of 1420 with an army of 20,000 men. Melun, however, refused to surrender, even after King Charles sent them a message demanding that they do so. Apparently, their message in response was polite but blunt. They always obey messages from their king unless those messages require them to surrender to Englishmen. However, by November, Milan had run out of provisions and had to surrender. On September 1st, 1420, Charles VI, Philip of Burgundy, and Henry V, King of England and heir to the French throne, made a triumphant entry into Paris. English forces would then occupy Paris for the next 15 years. According to a Burgundian chronicler, the English turned Paris into a new London. That, by the way, was not intended as a compliment. In January 1421, King Henry V returned to England. He had been gone for three and a half years. He went on a sort of victory tour of the realm, the real purpose of which was to raise yet more money for yet more war against the Armagnacs in France. I should note, by the way, that the leading Armagnac in France at this point is none other than the Dauphin, prince and future king of France. He realized his father was mad and had no intention of being part of this dog and pony show any longer. But by the beginning of May 1421, Henry V had done the trick and raised over 38,000 pounds for more war. And not a moment too soon. In April 1421, news came back to England that the Duke of Clarence, Henry's younger brother, and at this point technically the heir to the throne, had been killed at battle at Baget, about 30 miles from Tours. Henry returned to France in June 1421, after only staying in England for around five months. He made for Paris immediately with his 4,000 troops, because English-held Paris was under siege by the Armagnac's forces. There were three main Armagnac strangleholds around the city. The stronghold Henry marched against was Miao, to the east of the city. Miao is a small town, tiny in medieval times, on the bend of the Marne River, to the east of Paris. It would be difficult for Henry to take, because on three sides it was protected by the river, and on the fourth side by a canal. Plus, it was October by the time he started the siege, and all four bodies of water were in flood. It was an absolutely miserable affair. The ground around the town was waterlogged, and a sharp frost set in earlier than expected, making matters worse. It was a dark harbinger of things to come, and disease set in at much higher rates than normal. The only good news for Henry right now is that on December 6th, 1421, Queen Catherine gave birth to a son at Windsor, back in England, the future Henry VI. Miao 
finally surrendered on March 9, 1422, but the garrison held out another two months until May of that same year. It had been a grueling siege of eight months. Sadly for Henry, at some point during the siege, he contracted dysentery. When he returned to Paris in May, he was already very ill. When he found himself unable to ride a horse, he must have realized his time was running short. He quickly made provisions for his government, given that Henry VI was still an infant. His brother, John, Duke of Bedford, and whom I will refer to from this point on as Bedford, would be regent of France and guardian of the baby. The Duke of Gloucester would then be regent of England. On August 31st, 1422, still in France, Henry V, king of England and so nearly king of France, died. He was only 35 years old. One thing that I find fascinating about the Hundred Years' War is how often the most important players are the ones we've never heard of. Most people have heard of the Black Prince, but who's ever heard of Charles the Wise, the fifth King of France? Everyone's heard of Joan of Arc, but who has heard of John of Monmouth, Duke of Bedford? Yet time and time again, these lesser-known figures play the prominent role in the war. Maybe they just needed better PR people to come up with cooler names, I don't know. The seven years after the death of England's greatest military folk hero, apart from maybe Richard the Lionheart, were probably its most successful of the entire war. Amazingly, there was a real chance at one point of bringing all of France under English control, through Henry VI, who was Henri II in France. And sometimes this has to do with the cooperation of Frenchmen, mostly Parisians, with the English, and of course, Burgundy. However, Really, the glory should go to two men, as I mentioned, John of Monmouth, Duke of Bedford, again, who I'm going to call Bedford from here on out, and the Earl of Salisbury, whom I'll call Salisbury. Bedford was 33 in 1422 when he took control of the English government in France. He was an incredibly able administrator and known for being much more yielding than humane than Henry V. He was not a genius military man, but he did not have to be. His best quality was his unwavering loyalty to Henry VI and uncompromising in his belief that Henry VI was the true king of France. His right-hand man, Salisbury, was actually Thomas Montague. He was, after Henry V, the most distinguished military commander of the last several decades. He was also Henry V's favorite general. He was a disciplinarian, but fair, and so his men respected him. He was also a new kind of military man. He was a gunnery expert. Fifty years earlier, that would not have been a thing. Now gunpowder was a major part of the battlefield, especially siegecraft, and Salisbury was an expert in cannons. Also important during the regency of Henry VI was Richard Beauchamp, Earl of Warwick. I'm going to refer to him as Warwick from now on. These men could also rely on a whole cast of skilled Englishmen. These were the military minds that fought with Henry V 
and many would make their fortunes in the years to come in France. A few would live through it, only to die in the Wars of the Roses. I'm going to end today by talking about the state of affairs upon the death of Charles VI. The Mad King died on October 21st, 1422. His death, only about two months after the death of Henry V, catapulted Henry's infant son to the throne of his second European kingdom in as many months. As I mentioned, Henry VI of England would be Henri II of France. King Henri, and therefore Bedford, controlled most of Paris north of the Loire River, which remained loyal to the Dauphin and whose nominal capital was Poitiers. I guess he had a sense of irony, though in reality he moved from chateau to chateau as the needs dictated. Of course, this sets aside a ton of territory controlled by Philip, Duke of Burgundy. Anglo-France was kept completely separate from England in terms of administration. Paris was a sort of independent enclave. It had an English garrison, but its people and government, now purged of any Armagnacs, were more than happy to work with the English. Really, the only modern part of France to suffer from this relationship was Normandy. Normandy had been hit hardest by the war and repeated pillaging by both sides, but mostly the English. In fact, even though throughout this period, Normandy was seen as a sort of cash cow by the English that they desperately needed, they continued to allow their garrisons to randomly pillage the very countryside England now depended upon for its economic vitality. To be fair, Bedford did his best to protect Normandy. He even gave villagers their own bows and tried to get them to form town militias to defend themselves, ironically, against Bedford's own troops. Eventually, though, much of Lancastrian France became a desolate wasteland, haunted by roving gangs of English deserters. The only thing that held all this together from the very beginning was the cooperation between Philip of Burgundy and Bedford. Had the Burgundians not supported it, Lancastrian France would have collapsed immediately. And that's important to know. Burgundy here, by the way, does not mean one from Burgundy, as you might expect. It means a Frenchman loyal to the Duke of Burgundy. It wasn't necessarily a geographic title, but one of allegiance. As I said, even before the English garrison showed up, the Parisians decided they'd rather be a captive of the English Regency than the French Dauphin. Now, Philip of Burgundy is a really interesting guy. Obviously, he was massively ambitious. He was also violent and quick to anger. Chivalrous, he was not. And he was a notorious liar, who most Europeans felt not to be trusted. He was a Valois by blood, though. Thus, even though he was willing to accept Lancastrian rule in the short term to extend his own territories, he never appears to have had any intention of accepting a Lancastrian France in the long term, as we're going to see. I'm going to stop there because it's a good place to stop in the narrative before we jump into the years in France under the Regency. This is all to say that this shorter episode will be followed by a much longer one next time. Because next time, not only does Bedford have to deal with the Dauphin, but a girl from the countryside as well. 
one who claims to have had received a calling directly from God. Next time, Bedford has to deal with Joan of Arc. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.